0: to episode number 43 of Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. It's a new year, and Pastor Roy has decided to take a break from our series in John and do a series of messages to start out this new year called The Life God Blesses. Today, we are in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 3 and 4. And Pastor Roy will be talking about being a beggar and being broken. Here is Pastor Roy Burkett.
1: Today if you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to do a short series. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of John. And feel led to do a series as we begin the new year on the life God blesses. Uh, Basically this is coming out of the Beatitudes, uh, which is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, And I thought, you know, for 2015, it would be wonderful if our desire was to live a life that is blessed by God. That our heart's passion would be, I want to live my life in such a way that I experience the blessing of God. Uh, And how do we do that? Well, I I think the writer, gospel writer Matthew, tells us how that happens and so I've entitled the message today the beggar and the broken because I really believe that these are the two key words even though that word is not found in Matthew 5 3 the whole idea of being a beggar before God and in verse 4 the whole idea of mourning of being broken over our sin so let's just read those two verses in the Beatitudes uh, Matthew 5 Three and four. Jesus, of course, he sees the crowds, he runs up on a mountainside, it says in verse 1, "...sat down, his disciples came to him, he began to teach them, saying, "...Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted." The whole idea of blessing, the word actually means happy. But it's not happy in the sense of when I have favorable circumstances, I'm happy... And when I have unfavorable circumstances, I'm unhappy. Because this kind of happiness that the gospel writer is talking about is a happiness that is devoid of circumstances and is totally based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's what it means. It means to be supremely blessed. Spiros Zodiades, in his complete word study, says it is possessing the favor of God. It's the state of being marked by fullness from God, that my life is full and I'm blessed because I have found favor with God based on this kind of, not things I do, but based on this kind of character. This is the kind of character, he says, if we live with this kind of character, traits in our life, we can expect the blessing of God. And the first character trait is what? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a lot of discussion about what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is. Some people will say the kingdom of God is future oriented. That we're not experiencing the kingdom of God right now. It's sometime in the future. And they would be right. Others would say that the kingdom of God, no, it's here and now, and it's present among us. They also would be right. You say, wait a minute, how can it be future, and how can it be present? Uh, It's both, because the kingdom of God is within us. Jesus said when he came that the kingdom of God is here among you. The kingdom of God is within you. So the church, when the church preaches God's truth, and we behave according to the dictates of these beatitudes the kingdom of God is here. It is alive, it is active, but the kingdom of God is absent by and large in our world. It has not been fully established because not until every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord will the full manifestation of the kingdom of God be realized. And so D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the kingdom of God is the reign of God, or the reign of Christ. And Christ is reigning in every Christian. He reigns in the church when the church truly lives out the mandates of Scripture. The kingdom of God then has come. The kingdom of God is coming, and the kingdom of God is yet to come. Matthew is writing his gospel to Jews the Jews misunderstand the kingdom of God and what it really was. You see, the Jews were looking for a materialistic kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and bring political deliverance from the Roman Empire. And that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus brought. The Messiah, they believed, would deliver them from the bondage and domination of the Roman Empire. And they understood this kingdom to be external. However, the kingdom of God is within us. It is something that guides the heart and the mind as well as the attitude and the outlook. Some people believe if they practice the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, they will become a Christian. Some people think, well, if I live according to the Sermon on the Mount, I will become a Christian. However, that is false. False. If you have an unregenerate heart, you cannot begin to practice the Beatitudes. It is only those who have been transformed by the power of God that can begin to live out the character that Jesus has laid out for us in this sermon. And these character traits are not ridiculous or impossible for the Christian. They are available and possible for us to live out. So what is the first point I want to make this morning? The first point I would like to make is that my view of God determines my view of self. How I look at God determines how I look at myself. And this is why the world is so twisted up and mixed up, because they don't see themselves for who they really are. Only the believer in Jesus Christ can really understand who we are before God, because our view of God determines that. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that the favor of God rests on people who recognize their poverty of spirit. What does he mean by poor here? Well, some people would think maybe married with children is poor. Well, there may be a reality to that. Or, parents of college students are poor. Yes, that would probably be true, too. Uh, Someone once said that a father is a man who carries pictures where money used to be. (laughs) I thought, boy, that's true. Uh, But here, he's talking about, there are a couple different words in the New Testament that talk about poor. The first word talks about being poor where someone has a job, they have income, but they barely make ends meet. They eke out a living, they live from paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth, but they make it. The kind of poverty that Matthew is talking about here, and the word poor used here, is someone who has no job, no income, no food, no means of survival. They live in abject poverty, and their only means of survival is that someone gives to them. That's the kind of poverty God wants you and I to have. That we come to Him like a beggar. We come to Him with nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing. I can do nothing. In fact, didn't we just study in the Gospel of John, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You see that we are absolutely dependent upon Jesus Christ for every life and every breath that we breathe. That's what he's telling us. That's the kind of poverty he wants us to have. Helplessness. Even if I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next 400 years, I could not begin to pay off the debt of my sin. And neither could you. When we understand the greatness of our debt before a holy God and how unrighteous and filthy we are, we understand our poverty. But here's the problem. We have so watered down the doctrine of sin that people don't even want to preach about it anymore or talk about it. But when we understand the magnitude of our sin and how we have offended a holy God and how unrighteous and filthy we are, then we understand our poverty, that we are a beggar. And I'm helpless. Apart from Jesus Christ, I have no hope of eternal life. I have no hope of salvation apart from being a beggar and helpless before God. When I study the Beatitudes, I see my absolute poverty apart from Christ, because what am I doing? Now I am comparing my righteousness with the righteousness of Christ. I'm comparing my holiness with the holiness of Christ. I'm comparing my mercy with the mercy of Christ. I'm comparing my grace with the grace of Christ, and mine is worthless. And so is yours. So apart from Christ, we are absolutely helpless and poor. And we need to understand that. And I think we see a beautiful illustration of this and an example of this in a contrast between two individuals in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. And this is simply between the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18... Verse 9, he says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. They went there to engage in the same spiritual activity, but only one actually accomplished prayer. Only one actually accomplished prayer. One was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed, the Bible says, about himself. He was full of himself. He was full of pride. He was full of arrogance. He was full of boasting. He had no need of God whatsoever. He wanted to inform God simply of how good he was, how great he was, how faithful he was, how much better he was than everybody else around him. What was he comparing himself to in his righteousness to those around him? What does the beggar do? He doesn't compare himself to his brother or sister over here. He compares himself to the holiness of God. He compares himself to the righteousness of God. And that's where we understand our poverty of spirit. And so he looks and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men robbers, evildoers, even these adulterers, or even like this tax collector right over here that's praying out to you right now. I'm not even like him. I am so much above him. (laughs) He says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I mean, he goes on and on. But then we see the opposite. The tax collector, the Bible says, stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment. I deserve eternal punishment. But you have made provision for forgiveness. You have made provision for deliverance from sin. Have mercy on me, a sinner. One touted their pride and their arrogance, and the other one said, I'm poor. Their absolute poverty before God. The Bible says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee was self-reliant, he was self-confident, he was self-exalting. He was full of himself. And so is everyone who is apart from Christ. They are full of themselves. And isn't it interesting when you read about the prodigal son, when the Bible says he was out there and all his money was gone, and he was sitting and eating what the pigs were eating, the Bible says when he came to himself, he realized he realized what he was missing and that he needed to repent and turn to God. What I see in the tax collector is a sense of desperation. And Lorena didn't even realize that was one of the sub points. But what was the song we sang? A crying out in desperation. We need a generation who is seeking after God, crying out in desperation as we sang that this morning. You know what's going through my mind? How many people in the church are actually desperate for God? How many people are desperate for God? God, I want to see you move. I do want you to touch this generation. We are a sick nation. We need you to touch this generation. Oh, God. The tax collector realized he had nothing. He was nothing. He could do nothing. He needed everything. He cried out for mercy. I also see this in blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46, Jesus comes to Jericho and there's a large crowd gathered around him. And as this blind Bartimaeus hears about Jesus coming through his town, here's what happens. He says he heard Jesus of Nazareth. He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and called him and they called the blind man and said, Cheer up, get on your feet, Jesus wants to see you. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't go all the way to him. Jesus made the blind man come to him. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, he came to Jesus and he says, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight, and what did he do? He followed Jesus along the road. Here's what I want you to see here. Blind Bartimaeus was blind physically, but what Jesus is really trying to tell us is we are all blind spiritually. And the only touch that we can have is when we beggarly cry out to God for his mercy. As a beggar. As one who is broken over his sin, blinded by his sin, and he needs Jesus Christ, poor in spirit, blind Bartimaeus received his sight. God, blessed are the poor in spirit. He was blessed because he recognized his poverty of spirit. And as he cried out, out of that desperation, God touched him and healed him. And what did he do? He, did, he didn't have someone to tell him, well, now you've got to follow Jesus. No, he wanted to follow Jesus. Why? Out of obligation? No, out of gratitude. See, this is how you can tell someone who has been touched through their poverty of spirit and God has healed them and brought salvation to them. We follow Jesus no longer out of obligation, it's out of gratitude. Absolute gratitude for what God has done for me and for what God has done for you. My view of God determines my view of self. We also see someone else crying out for mercy. It's interesting. We we see the tax collector, what did he say? Have mercy on me, O God. What do we see blind Bartimaeus do? God, son of David, have mercy on me. We also see this in David with his great sin with Bathsheba when he realized his immorality before God. What does he say in Psalm 51? Have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. David's cry for mercy, he recognized his poverty of spirit before God. My view of God determines my view of self. David would never have known his sin except in light of the holiness of God. We also see a heart of humility. When we look at the tax collector, he couldn't even look to heaven. He was so broken over his sin. His humility. It reminds me of the song Rock of Ages and here's the words that are said naked or nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace fall I to the fountain fly wash me savior or I die. Isaiah 57 15 says, Jesus, or God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In Isaiah 66 2, he says, This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and listen carefully, and trembles. At my word. You see, the word of God has a great influence and impact in the life of someone who is poverty of spirit. They are a God-fearing man. They are a God-fearing woman. We don't hear those terms hardly used today. Are you a God-fearing man? Are you a God-fearing woman? That is one of the highest compliments you could ever be paid. To be a God-fearing person. To tremble at the word of God. But you know what? We have too many people who label themselves Christian and live pagan. And do not tremble at the word of God. We need to come back as a nation and tremble at the word of God. There's a deep respect for the Word of God. I honor the Word of God by conforming my life to its teachings. I have a fear of God. John Calvin, the 16th century theologian, during the Protestant Reformation, he said, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. I want to do another contrast for you. A contrast between Job... And Mrs. Job, (laughs) I don't know what her name was, but Job's wife. Job, we know, was blessed by God, and Job realized he was blessed by God. Satan also realized that Job was blessed by God. And it says in Job 1.10, Satan says to the Lord, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands. Why? Job was a man who was poor in spirit. He was rich in wealth, but he was poor in spirit. He was blessed. You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. The next verse, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. How many people, when God has brought something into their life, they begin to curse God for what they are going through? Not the person who recognizes they are nothing, they have nothing, they need Jesus Christ. That person will never curse God. And remember what I said, my view of God determines my view of God. What was Satan attempting to do? Satan was attempting to get Job to change his view of God, which would result in Job changing his view of himself. So what, what did Satan do? Job's oxen and donkeys were stolen. Some of Job's employees were killed. Job's sheep were burned up. Job's camels were stolen. More of Job's employees were killed. Now that helps payroll, but it doesn't help you get the work done. Job's children, his sons and his daughters, were killed in a windstorm. Here is an absolute picture of poverty and destitution. Would you agree? Is that not a picture of destitution and poverty before God? When everything else is stripped away and you only are left with Jesus Christ... (laughs) and God that's a picture of poverty so what is job's attitude here's what i'm curious about what is job's attitude when everything is taken away what is his view of god and his view of himself well it says down in chapter 1 verse 20 at this job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head then he fell to the ground in worship He did not curse God. He fell to the ground in worship like someone who was poor in spirit and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. And then here, here's his view of God. The Lord gave, and the Lord what? Has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He's saying, you know what? I was a recipient of the grace of God in having anything at all. And now I'm a recipient of the grace of God in Him taking away everything He gave me. God is still gracious in every act that He performs. Wow, what an attitude. What a spirit. God, give me that kind of spirit. His view of God determined His view of Himself and His situation. He recognized the grace of God in both situations. And I think oftentimes we only recognize it on the former and not the latter. We recognize it when God does all the giving, but we fail to recognize the grace of God when He actually takes something away from me. And maybe the reason He takes it away is to remind me of my poverty. In Job chapter 2, we see Mrs. Job. How does Mrs. Job react to all this? Well, now Satan comes and he says, you know what? He hasn't cursed you yet to your face, so now... How about skin for skin? Let me strike his health and his body and take away his health. And surely he will curse you to your face. He gives that one a try. he said he still maintains his integrity. Satan says, skin for skin, Satan replies, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. What does it take in your life and my life to get us to curse God? The Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And what does Mrs. Job say? Curse God and die. The very thing that Satan was trying to get Job to say, Mrs. Job said. She failed to see the grace of God. Our view of God determines our view of ourself. I don't know what you are going through Maybe you have marriage trouble. Maybe the reason you have marriage trouble is God is trying to show you your poverty of spirit that husband and wife need Jesus Christ to make the marriage work. Maybe you have debt that is way over your head. You said, you know, if God would just drop $10,000 out of heaven and give me a check, man, things would be a whole lot better. But maybe the reason your debt is up to here is you have not recognized your poverty of spirit and God has brought debt into your life to show you your poverty of spirit that you need Jesus Christ. (laughs) Maybe you're having a problem with a child. Maybe the reason you're having that problem with that child is so that you as parents realize you need to be poor in spirit and you need the grace and mercy of God to know how to parent that child. Poverty of spirit. The day the church of Jesus Christ begins to recognize our poverty of spirit is the day the church will begin to experience revival. I believe that with all my heart. The reason I believe the church in America has not experienced revival is we have not understood our poverty. And, you know, there's actually a warning, or not a warning, but an example. Let me just read it for you real quick. We won't have time to elaborate on this. But in Revelation chapter 3, there are churches that letters were written to the churches And here's what it says about the church in Laodicea. He says in verse 17, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. That to me is an example of the church in America. The church in America is rich and wealthy and we don't need a thing. But here's what he says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, what an indictment against the church. What an indictment against the church in America. Oh, how we need God. But let me give you the second one. He goes on to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is great blessing when we recognize the grace of God and we cast ourselves at his mercy. And these kind of build on one another. I think Jesus was very intentional in giving this message. Until we begin with that poverty of spirit, we cannot even move to the next point. The next verse says, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Here's where the brokenness comes in, where we are absolutely broken over our sin. So here's the next point. My lifestyle shows what I believe about God. And why do I say my lifestyle? Because this morning for sin... Happens at conversion when I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, but it never stops there. My mourning for sin is a lifestyle. I never get away from the agony of my sin and the heinousness of my sin and the hatred for sin that I have the day that I accepted Jesus Christ. It actually grows. My hatred for sin grows. And therefore, it is a lifestyle, that I have a lifestyle of hatred for sin. I mourn, I grieve over personal sin, I grieve over corporate sin, I grieve over sin in my community, I grieve over sin in my nation, I grieve over the leadership of our nation because the leadership of our nation is making decisions that are not biblical and are making decisions that are culturally popular. But those culturally popular decisions are in the face of God. Great offense. We have committed over 50 million abortions in this country, and we don't even bat an eye anymore about abortion because it happens every day. But we should be grieving over the sin of abortion. Absolutely broken as a country and as a nation. We should be grieving over same-sex marriage, the marriage that God instituted between a man and a woman for life. And what have we done? We have marred the image that God has set up. We say, well, that's just the way it is. Not in the eyes of God. And we do the same thing with lying and deceit and jealousy and envy and gossip, whatever sin it is, immorality. There's rampant, even in the church, pornography. All these sins grieve the heart of God. And they should grieve our hearts as well. Oh God, don't let us ever become comfortable in our sin. Let it break us. Let us drive us to our knees, on our face before God. If we're going to experience the blessing of God, rather than a curse, a sense of brokenness over sin. It grieves my heart whenever I do something that is contrary to God's truth. I grieve over people who do that which is right in their own eyes and seemingly have no regard or consideration for what God says about a particular subject. I think we see this in Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is before the presence of God. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. They couldn't even look at the glory of God. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. We can't begin to understand what he was feeling and sensing in that place. And here's what he says when he sees the presence and the glory of God. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, his view of God changed his view of himself. His view of God changed his view of his people. We have a fresh view and glimpse of God. One commentator suggests that religion, according to the Bible, is neither a set of intellectual convictions nor a bundle of emotional feelings, but a compound of both, the former giving birth to the latter. It touches me not only intellectually, it touches me emotionally. There are so many people who come to the Scripture, and they only come to it intellectually. And they can argue and debate the Bible, but it never touches their heart. And that's the whole point. C.S. Lewis once wrote of this experience. He said, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, he says, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether, or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. You see, the way to a jubilant heart is through tears. (laughs) What does he say? Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you mourn, if you repent and confess your sin before God, God brings in comfort. He takes away the burden of sin, and that burden of sin is lifted at Calvary. And when that burden of sin is lifted, it brings joy to the heart. And that's why the psalmist David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Once he repented of his sin, he could experience that joy. Comfort and blessing comes when we confess our sin. In Psalm 32, the psalmist David says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are forgiven. Are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And here's what it says in verse 11 of that same chapter Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, sing, all you who are upright in heart. When you have been forgiven of all your sin, remember how big that debt was? That we could never erase, that we could never repay, that we could never earn or deserve. It's been erased from time and eternity. Praise God. You're blessed to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be in a reconciled relationship with a holy God. Wow. Blessing comes. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 51:17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But you know before God can bless us. Sometimes he has to break us. He has to break us before he can bless us. We have to be broken over our sin. A good example of that is in Daniel chapter 4. We see Nebuchadnezzar who was the king who had risen to power and God had blessed Nebuchadnezzar and his leadership. And he says, 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power And for the glory of my majesty, he exalted himself. The words were still on his lips when a voice from heaven came. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And he did. He lived like an animal. God broke him before he blessed him. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. His nails like the claws of a bird. But at the end of that time, after God broke him, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. And later on in verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. His view of God determined his view of self. And so it is in our lives. And that is why it is absolutely essential that you and I keep ourselves in this book. The more I'm in this, the more I'm here, the more I realize my poverty before God. The greater the magnitude of my sin, the greater my grief over sin, the more of a beggar I feel, and the more broken I become because of this book. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. This is the first Sunday of 2015. What kind of year are you anticipating? Are you anticipating this to be a good year and what do you call good? I call a good year to be the life that God blesses. The year that God blesses. How is that going to happen? By recognizing I'm a beggar, I have nothing, I am nothing, and I need Jesus Christ, and by being broken over my sin, not the size of my sin, not the amount of my sin, I'm broken over sin because it breaks the heart of God. And I would just ask you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't mean how many years you've been in church or how how much money you've put in the offering, how many times you've given testimony. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place where you recognize that you are a beggar before God and your debt is larger than you could possibly pay Do you recognize that today? If you do, you can be blessed by allowing the Spirit of God to break you over your sin. That you will be broken over your sin. That is my prayer. And that you would give your life to Jesus Christ. That you will not anymore try to do it in your own strength, in your own flesh. Would you recognize the Lord? Jesus died for sin. It's serious business. He paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin, that we could be forgiven. And oh, my prayer for Bethesda Church, my prayer for the church of Jesus Christ is that we would be beggars and broken before God so that we can experience the blessing of God and the grace of God you see the more I understand how sinful I am the greater God's grace becomes his grace becomes absolutely as the songwriter said amazing it's amazing grace how sweet to sound the saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. If you're here this morning and God has convicted you of your sin, would you be willing to confess that sin to him right where you are in your seat? Say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve your judgment and wrath, but now I realize your grace is sufficient for me. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin, come into my heart and cleanse me and make me a new person in Jesus Christ. Would you pray that prayer to God and mean it in your heart? If you do, you will be like blind Bartimaeus. The mercy of God will have been extended to you and you will follow Jesus. As a result, out of gratitude, God help us If you have questions about your relationship with God, I'll be shaking hands at the back door. Please wait and speak to myself or someone about your eternal soul. We are here to minister to you. I would love to talk with you. Let's
0: pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message.